recurring nightmares about going back to prison and being found out. And so I was living with this, this stress and this angst, but people didn't know it. The people that I worked with for 30, 40 years had no clue about what my background was. And again, that was, that was the, the biggest challenge that I was dealing with was the stress that I was holding on to because I was always concerned that somebody would find out or something would come out and it would ruin everything I had built up to that point. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Larry Miller. Larry is the chairman and former president of Nike's Jordan brand and is largely responsible for making the Jordan brand the massive multi-billion dollar success that it is today. But before Larry was leading one of the most recognizable brands in sportswear, he was a troubled kid from Philadelphia who spent most of his youth in and out of jail. And when Larry was just 16 years old, he shot and killed a complete stranger, something that Larry says he thinks about every day of his life. For years, Larry kept his criminal history a secret as he rose the ranks in corporate America. But now, Larry is choosing to share his story and for a very compelling reason. My full conversation with Larry Miller right after this quick break. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Larry Miller, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for, uh, thank you for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to, to share my story. Yeah, and you know, you have a truly powerful story about going from being incarcerated at a very young age to eventually rising the ranks in corporate America, growing one of the most recognizable brands in the country, a brand that I love, which is uh, Nike's Jordan brand. And I think there are so many people that can learn from your story, and there's so much that they can learn. But the first thing that I'm interested in is when you look back at your life um, with all of these experiences that you've had, what do you make of it? How, how do you think about your own trajectory? You know, um, a lot of times I still have to uh, pinch myself because it's tough for me to even believe and realize that I've, you know, been able to do the things that I've been able to do based on where I come from. And so, Looking back, it really lets me know and makes me believe that this story was meant to help motivate and inspire some people. And I do believe that the reason for all of this is so that it can let people know that redemption can really happen, that people can really change their life and really become folks who contribute to society as opposed to folks who take from society. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that that the story resonates with people to to actually, you know, help improve some folks' condition in life and, and also to help improve the perspective that people have of folks who have been involved with the criminal justice system. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about it in a little bit because while your story is obviously a story of redemption, 
You know, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in this country that haven't necessarily had the same opportunity for redemption after being incarcerated. And and I'm really interested to get your perspective on that. But I want to start by talking about, you know, what is, I'm sure, the the darkest moment in your life, which is at 16 years old, when you were drunk, you were angry, and you ended up killing Edward David White, who I believe was a complete stranger to you. Can you talk about what the emotional experience was like for you that day and then immediately thereafter? Well, um, that particular day, uh, again, uh, one of my friends, one of my gang members had been killed and, you know, a few of us were drinking cheap wine and got drunk and just decided that, you know, we were going to go and look for some way to take out revenge on the gang that had killed my friend. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we ran into Mr. White, who had nothing to do with any of this, who was totally um, senseless and uncalled for. But he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, we assumed that he was a member of the gang. And uh, and so, you know, I, I shot him and he died. And uh, at that point, I was so drunk and so out of it that I didn't even realize what had happened. I mean, I, I knew what had happened, but it just didn't resonate with me. It didn't it didn't dawn on me what had happened until much later when I got arrested. And fortunately, we did get arrested that night because I think the mindset we were in, if we had seen some other people, it could have been a much worse situation. And it's something that I regret every day of my life. That's one of the reasons why I'm sharing this story and hopefully to let someone else, let other folks know, or someone who might be headed down the path that I was on, to hopefully make them stop and think about what they're about to do and to change their direction. So it's been roughly 56 years, I believe, since that day. And you you mentioned that, you know, you regret this every day of your life, but I want to go a little bit deeper. When you think about Mr. White on any given day, what is the typical thought that comes to your mind or the feeling that you feel as you reflect on that day? Uh, It's a feeling of of sorrow and regret. I mean, I've been, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet with some of Mr. White's family and to share and express my regret and sorrow to them. And uh, to their credit, they were willing to forgive me. Um, And that has probably been the most important thing to me that's come out of this whole process. The fact that, you know, having the family be willing to say, you know, we forgive you for what you did. There's nothing that's been more important to me coming out of this whole process than that. Even though he was only 16 years old at the time, Larry was charged with second degree murder as an adult. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to four and a half to 20 years for the murder of Edward David White. And this wasn't the first time that Larry had been incarcerated. Since the age of about 13, he'd been in and out of jail for various smaller crimes. And even after serving four and a half years for the killing of Mr. White, Larry found himself in prison again at the age of 24 for a series of armed robberies. He was given a sentence of four to 10 years, but this time something finally shifted for Larry. The thing that was uh, that changed my life was that uh, when I was incarcerated the last time, 
the place I was at uh, had a program where you could take college classes inside the jail. There were a number of schools that offered classes, uh, Temple University, Cheney State, Villanova, Montgomery County Community College, all these were, they were offering college classes inside the jail. And then you could qualify to move into this, this program where you lived in these trailers, actually outside the jail, and you could leave every day and go to school and just have to be back by eight o'clock at night. And when I heard about that program, the incentive for me was like, hey, if I gotta do time, I'd rather do it like that. I'd rather figure out how to get into that program. But once I got into the program and started taking classes and started meeting people who were willing to help me and just started looking at, could I really change my life? And I started to, at a certain point, I started to believe it. Because I think at the end of the day, that's the most important thing for people who are in that situation and who, you know, who want to change their life. You have to actually believe it yourself first, because if you don't believe it, if you don't believe that you can change, then there's no incentive for you to do the things that can help you, you know, move down that new path. Um, so once I got into the program and started to really believe that I could change my life, I ended up uh, getting my associate's degree while I was still in the program. I was able to transfer all of those credits to Temple University and moved out to a halfway house in North Philadelphia and started at Temple as a, as a junior and was able to get my degree in accounting from Temple University and then kind of start to build on my career from there. As we talk about, you know, let's call it the age between 16 to late 20s or mid to late 20s where you're in and out of jail for these different uh, crimes that you had committed, how much clarity or motivation did you have around, you know, having a career, being successful? Like at what point did that actually become a reality or important to you? All of my life from the very early age, um, I was always told by family, you know, mom and pop, uncles, all that, you know, that I could accomplish anything that I put my mind to. I was always encouraged because from, you know, all through elementary school, I was like smartest kid in the class, teacher's pet, that whole thing. And it wasn't until I got to middle school or what we called junior high school back then that I started to drift into the street life and got pulled into the street. And even when I was, even when I was in the street and in the, the criminal stuff, I always thought about like, okay, I, how can I make this work? Even though I end up getting caught a lot of the time. But, but um, you know, it, it really was about figuring out and believing that I could change my life, which was really what, uh, what, what really was the motivation for me. But, but I always believed that I could do whatever I put my mind to. And so once I decided that this was what I was gonna do, that I was gonna try to get my life on track and that I was tired of, I, I was just tired of the, continued in and out of jail and I saw what the future looked like there. It was uh, either being in jail for the rest of my life or being dead or strung out on drugs or not, not a good situation. So that last time that I was incarcerated, I had decided that, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to try to figure out a different way to approach my life. I want to uh, shift now to your, your life after prison and specifically your early career. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to be a professional after prison and specifically what some of these corporate jobs, whether it was at Campbell's or at Jansen Swimwear, were like for you? So um, when, I, when I was about to, uh, to graduate from Temple, 
it was what was called the big eight accounting firms. And so if you were an accounting major, that was your goal was to work for one of the big eight accounting firms. And that was my goal. And so I interviewed with a number of the accounting firms, but the one that I really was kind of focused on was called Arthur Anderson at the time. And, and uh, I went, spent the whole day there interviewing uh, with a number of people, enjoying it. It was feeling good to me. I think they were feeling me. So it was, it was good. And I get to the last, uh, the last person who was kind of the, the hiring manager and, um, all day I've been thinking like, should I share my story with these folks? You know, cause if they're going to hire me, should I really let them know? And so finally I decided with this last person that I was going to actually share my story with him. So I sat down in his office and started to tell him my story. And as I'm talking to him, I could see his face changing. And I'm like, oh, I don't feel like this is going the way I'd hoped it would go. Um, anyway, I get through and, um, and he says, wow, that's, uh, that's an amazing story. He said, and I'm sure you're going to do great. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out an envelope and he said, I have a, an offer here that I was all ready to give you, but I can't give it to you now. He said, I, I can't take the chance that something happens down the line or, you know, one of my clients finds out about this. He said, so, you know, I wish you the best, but I can't offer you the job. And at that point, I decided that I was not going to share my background anymore. If someone asked or if there was a question, I wasn't going to lie. I wasn't going to deny it, but I wasn't going to volunteer the information. And that's the way I approached uh, my career from that point on. I started at Campbell Soup. The question on the application was, have you been convicted of a crime in the last five years? Well, the answer was no. It had been longer than five years. I, so I was able to truthfully answer that question and then get the job. And that, from that point on, there was either there wasn't a question or if it was, there was a time situation on it or I didn't get asked about it anymore based on my resume and what I had done. But every job that I took, every opportunity that I took advantage of along the way also brought with it angst and concern and worry and stress because once I decided not to share my story, then it became concern about it coming out. And so my whole focus then was on, even though I was taking these additional jobs and some of them became, and, and each one became more and more high profile, um, but at the same time, I was totally stressed out. I mean, I had a migraines that were so bad, they took me to the, to the ER a couple of times. Um, had recurring nightmares about going back to prison and being found out. And so I was living with this this stress and this angst, but people didn't know it. The people that I worked with for 30, 40 years had no clue about what my background was. And again, that was that was the, the biggest challenge that I was dealing with was the stress that I was holding on to because I was always concerned that somebody would find out or something would come out and it would ruin everything I had built up to that point. Larry wasn't just keeping the secret from his colleagues. Even his family wasn't fully aware of his history. So hardly anyone in Larry's life knew of the stress and physical pain that keeping this secret was causing him. We're gonna take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear about how the opportunity to work with Nike and the Jordan brand came about, what pushed Larry to finally come clean about his history, and how Michael Jordan and his colleagues at Nike reacted to the news. Stay with us.
And we're back. Before the break, we heard about Larry's history of being in and out of jail as a young man and how he finally managed to turn his life around by taking college classes in prison and eventually starting a career in accounting. But naturally, I was curious to know how exactly he went from Jansen swimwear to working with Michael Jordan at Nike. Tell me how the opportunity to work with Michael Jordan and the Jordan brand came about. So when I was at Jansen, uh, I started at Jansen as the controller there. And a couple years in, I became the president of Jansen. And we were sitting around one day trying to come up with ideas of how we could grow our business. And one of the things that we talked about was getting into what's called competition swimwear. So the stuff we were making was more like for the beach or for a cruise ship. And then there's competition swimming that people normally refer to as Speedos, right? And so we had decided that that was an opportunity business for us. And we were kind of kicking around ideas of how to get there. And at one point, I was like, you know, we should talk to Nike. We're here in Portland. They're here in Portland. They have an incredible brand that's athletic and authentic. We know how to make swimwear. Maybe there's an opportunity here. So long story short, ended up reaching out and finding out that Nike was in the process of looking for someone to partner with to do swimwear. And so found out the right person, connected, uh, put together a presentation, and we came over and presented to Nike why we were the best partners for them. And um, the guy who was the head of Nike's global apparel business at the time, a guy named Stephen Gomez. I heard that after we presented and we left, Stephen said to the rest of the Nike team, like, hey, you guys can keep looking, but it doesn't get any better than that. And so we ended up doing the deal, signing off. And and in the process of that, uh, Stephen and I agreed that we would kind of nurse this project along because for Jansen, it was a big deal. For Nike, it was one of the first licensing deals that they were doing. So occasionally him and I would get together and kind of go over business issues or whatever. And we would typically sometimes do it over dinner. And I remember leaving the last dinner and I'm driving home. I'm like, I feel like I just got interviewed. (laughs) And sure enough, a couple weeks later, he raised out and said, hey, would you have any interest in coming to work for Nike? And I was like, absolutely. So my first job at Nike was uh, head of apparel in the U.S. Uh, so I started, I was vice president, general manager of apparel in the U.S. And, um, and I did that job for about a year and a half. And in the meantime, Michael Jordan was about to retire from the Bulls. And there was a lot of conversation about, you know, what's going to happen after Michael retires. Because the formula was, you know, Tinker creates this cool shoe. We do some advertising with Spike or Bugs Bunny or somebody, and then MJ wears the shoe, you know, into the playoffs. And now you're taking a big piece of the formula out. So there was a lot of concern. A lot of people thought that, hey, this has been a nice run, but but it's over at this point. So so I was asked uh, by by Phil Knight to put a team together and put strategies together on on how we could take the Jordan logo and actually create a brand. And uh, fortunately, I was able to put an incredible team together. Uh, Phil Knight accused me of cherry picking the organization, which I, I didn't deny. Um, and uh, and we were able to put together strategies and approach of how we were going to, you know, take that logo and take all of the things that Michael Jordan stood for and all the things that he accomplished and create a brand around that. And um, and, you know, fortunately, we were able to, to have a little bit of success with that. It's uh 
It's cool hearing you talk about this because as someone who um, voraciously reads biographies, business books, social psychology books, you know, Shoe Dog is up there for me and best books I've ever read. And it's just cool to hear both the the story of Nike broadly, but also in the books, you know, details around the Jordan brand and, you know, now kind of talking to the man that was behind so much or uh, all of the the growth of this this brand that's now a four billion dollar business. Actually, we're actually we're a little over five billion now. So not not that's a, <laughs> you know. Hey, that that's a you know that's a twenty five percent difference. We'll, we'll <laughs> give you the benefit of the doubt there. So five billion dollar brand. What uh when you reflect on how you've gotten there, what are the one or two decisions? that you and call your leadership team at Jordan have made that you think were pivotal to Jordan becoming as big as it is today? I, I think the first one was we, when we were starting to do this, when we were starting saying, hey, okay, we, we've got this task here that we need to figure out. The thing that we started with was identifying who our core consumer was. And once we identified the core consumer, then everything that we did was focused on that consumer product, marketing, distribution. Everything we did was focused around that consumer and being true to that consumer and really focusing in on it. Who is that consumer? Well, it, for us, it was 16, 17-year-old kid in the city, inner city kid, urban kid, who is the leader on his basketball team, the guy that everybody looks to for style, you know, he's, he's that kid. And that was who we, we targeted. Um, and I, I, I'll never forget. We, uh, I was in my office one day and I get a call from, from Hollywood promo, which for Nike, they were the folks who did product placement with entertainers. And they said, Hey, uh, we just got a call from NSYNC and they're going to be performing at Super Bowl at halftime and they want to wear Jordan. And, uh, I was like, yeah, let me think about that for a little bit. So I got my team together and we kicked it around. And part of the team was like, hey, man, we should do this because it's the Super Bowl. And and other part of the team was like, no, but it's... so I had to end up making the call and I, and I decided not to do it. And the reason was our goal was to focus on our target consumer. And NSYNC didn't resonate with who our target consumer was at that time. So we made the decision to not do it. And there were a number of decisions along the way like that that we made that said, no, we're not going to do that because it's not going to resonate with our core consumer. And, I, and I'm a true believer that if you focus on your core consumer and you target and do everything right for them, you'll get other people. And, and it's it's worked for us, uh, you know, because I think one of the thing one of the reasons why is our target was someone who influences other people. Yeah, I mean again, the type of long-term thinking that you need to have to make what some would say are massive trade-offs, like the opportunity to have exposure at the largest sports event in the world. It's just amazing focus. And like you said, just relentless focus on who your core customer is. And folks that are listening to this who maybe think, you know, yeah, but that's such a specific audience. You can't build a massive business off of that. It, I couldn't be more wrong because exactly. at the end of the day, if you try to be all things to all people, you'll be nothing. And in the world of media, the way we think about it is what are valuable niches? And people always assume niches are small. Niche means small, and that's not the case. It means niche is focused. And to your point, it sounds like so much of 
the leadership that you instilled in Jordan was how are we relentlessly focused on this one person? And and some of those things, you know, seem counterintuitive. You know, it's like I remember when we uh, one of, one of the things we did when we first kind of started to, to build the brand was we looked at where our product was being distributed, where our product was being sold. And our goal was to build this, you know, luxury, this elite brand. And it's like some of the places we're selling our product doesn't make sense. So we, we actually cut our number of doors in half. Wow. We, we were at 9,000 doors. We said, no, we're going to go to 45. We went from 9,000 doors to 4,500. And I'll never forget presenting to the Nike uh, Nike leadership and saying, hey, we're going to cut in half the doors that we're in. We're probably going to be down a little bit this year, but that's going to lead to us taking off. And, uh, and you know, fortunately, they, they believed in us and they said, OK, do that. And that first year we were actually flat. It's incredible. So we, we weren't down. We were flat, which was great. And then the, the business just took off at that point. But what we were doing was creating this sense of scarcity. We, we, we realized that the other thing that we had to do, that we wanted to do with this brand, if we we're going to create this luxury brand within the footwear and apparel business, that we had to create a sense of scarcity around that product. And and we did that. And, and you know, I, I, I know... There was a lot of things that happened around the fact that we did that that were not positive, you know, as far as people, um, you know, getting robbed and things like that. But that was never our intention. That was never our goal. And that was never anything, something that we supported. Our goal was to create this coveted brand. And, um, and you know, that, that was one of the ways that we, we decided to do that. Larry certainly succeeded in making Jordan brand shoes a highly coveted commodity. If you live anywhere near a Foot Locker or Snipes, you've probably seen the line out the door when a new pair of Air Jordans drops. It's even been reported that the brand brings Nike $3 million in revenue every five hours. But despite all of Larry's success at Nike, he was still suffering in silence from keeping this secret. I want to talk about why you're deciding to kind of tell your story in full now. You alluded to it earlier, but... You obviously, you've written a book and it's about this whole process. And my understanding is that your oldest daughter was a, a big part of the reason that you decided to tell your story. But tell, tell me why now. So, so my, um, to your point, my oldest daughter worked on me for years uh, and basically saying, Dad, you, you need to share this story with people. You, it's going to motivate and inspire some people. And I was like, no, I don't. I don't want to. I, I'm not ready to put this out there because, again, I, I, I was still concerned about what the reaction and what the response would be. But o- over the years, I mean, it, it was like 12, 13 years that, that her and I worked on it. She started working on me, and then we, I finally agreed. Like, okay, I said, hey, if I'm going to do this, then you're going to do it with me. So we're going to do this together. And um, we started working on it probably more over 10 years ago, wow. and it was. My fault that it took so long. One, my schedule was kind of crazy, but I used my schedule as an excuse. It's always the best off, excuse. To put it off as much as I possibly could. And, um, and eventually, so, so what her and I would do, we would get together over the course of those years. We would get together maybe three or four times, five times a year and just sit down and spend hours me talking and sharing stories, her asking questions and her recording all of this, right? 
And then she would take it back and transcribe what we talked about. And so at the end, we had a, a document that had all this, these stories and all, but it wasn't a book. And so we ended up uh, connecting with CAA agency and connected us with uh, uh, someone who could help us put this in book form. And so her and I put it together. And, and to me, I think the timing is kind of, it's worked, it worked out perfectly for me. I think, uh, you know, my, responsibilities here at Nike are not as challenging as they were when I was running the brand on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, it allowed for me to be able to, to focus on sharing this story. And I think just with everything that's going on in the country right now, you know, it's probably a, a good time for a story like this to, to come out and to, you know, maybe help to get some people motivated and to get some people to, like I said, understand that because someone made a mistake or made multiple mistakes in their life doesn't mean that they can't change their life and, and you know, get on a positive path. You, I believe, joined the Jordan brand in 1999 until 2007 and then returned in 2012 up until today. Tell me when in that journey you told Nike leadership and when you told Michael about your story? Well, first of all, I, um, I didn't tell Michael or Phil Knight until we, we pretty much had, had written the book and were kind of pretty far down the path at that point. And I, I realized like, okay, if I'm gonna do this, if this is really gonna happen, there's some people that I wanna make sure I talk to beforehand, that they don't hear this somewhere else, that they hear from me. And so, MJ and, and Phil Knight were the first two people that I arranged to connect with. Unfortunately, it was um, during the pandemic, so I ended up uh, doing it virtually. And uh, neither of them knew anything about my past at that point. I remember Phil Knight, when I told Phil, hey, I want something I want to talk to you about that's personal. And he said, oh, okay, let's, let's get it. So we, we get on the call and uh, I kind of share my story and tell him, and uh, he said, he said, wow, he said, uh, I didn't know what to expect, but it definitely wasn't this. <laughs> <laughs> and but then he said, this story is amazing. He said, uh, it's not only inspirational, it's aspirational. And he said, you need to tell this story and I will help you however I can. Wow. And then uh, the same with MJ. I got on the call with MJ and uh, kind of said, hey, you know, here's what I got to tell you. And I started out by saying, um, you know, my daughter kind of convinced me that um, that I should share this story. And I, so I, I go through the spiel with MJ and it's quiet for a couple of seconds, maybe about five or 10 seconds. And then finally he said, I agree with your daughter 100%. You need to tell this story and I'll do whatever I can to help you. So I think if either one of them had said, well, maybe you shouldn't do this or maybe you should, I would have been much more reluctant to do it. But they were both without hesitation you need to tell this story. You need to do it, and I'll support you. And Nike, Nike has been absolutely amazing in their support of me in, in this process. I, I, I've been blown away by how supportive Nike has been. Let's um, let's bring this full circle. I asked you in the beginning of the conversation when you think about Edward White and your feelings towards that day and towards the reality that you've taken someone else's life and you told me, you know, what the emotions are towards that. I want to finish by asking you if you've been able to forgive yourself. I know you mentioned that Edward White's family 
Um, you spoke to them. They have forgiven you. But have you forgiven yourself? You know, that, that, that is the, that's, the, that's been the toughest part for me. Um, you know, I feel like, uh, like I said, the family has forgiven me. I, I feel like I've asked God for forgiveness, and I, I believe I've been forgiven, uh, you know, spiritually. Um, but the hardest part has been to forgive myself and to uh, get over the guilt and the, the, you know, remorse that I feel for what I did. But I feel like sharing this story is kind of the ultimate give back for, for me personally, because this is something that I, I really didn't have to do. Um, I could have kind of just continued to ride out the rest of my life. And uh, a friend of mine said, man, you were planning to take this story to the grave, which I said, yeah, I was. And um, but I think uh, the fact that I've been willing to share it um, to me, that's part of what's helped me to forgive myself about it, because, like I said, I, I'm, I'm looking at the, the entire journey now and just saying there had to be a reason for for this. And it appears that the reason is maybe I can help to motivate and inspire and improve some other people's lives. Well, I know it uh, it absolutely wasn't an easy decision, but um, I think it's a decision that will allow you to have a massive impact on a lot of people outside of yourself. And so, uh, Larry Miller, I appreciate you telling your story and I appreciate you chatting with me on Imposters. Well, thank you, Alex. And, uh, you know, it's been, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to to share the story and to, um, you know, hopefully motivate and inspire some people. The crime that Larry Miller committed in his early life is one that would be easy to think that there is no coming back from. And while nothing can bring back the life of Edward David White, who Larry killed when he was just 16 years old, the positive things that Larry has done with his life since committing that horrible crime, those things are inspiring. And as you heard in the interview, the whole reason he's even telling his story now is because he believes it might help others who were once in his situation. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 95% of all state prisoners will be released at some point. And Larry told me that the educational programs that helped him to improve his own life, they no longer exist in many institutions. As Larry told me, the goal should be to help those who are incarcerated come out of jail as better people than they were when they went in. And there is no more hopeful an example of how programs like this can truly change people in a positive way than that of Larry Miller. Now, Imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Makila Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by The Mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.